Minnesota judge finds Sprint Fidelis MDL claims are preempted, and a New Jersey judge affirms a $10.5 million Accutane Irritable Bowel Disease verdict. These and other stories make up this edition of the LexisNexis Product Liability and Tort Law Center podcast. www.lexisnexis.com slash communities. The LexisNexis Law Centers. Your community, your expertise, your starting point for the information you need for your practice area. LexisNexis.com slash communities. The LexisNexis Law Centers. Did you know? Did you know? There are LexisNexis community pages for insurance law, products liability and toxic torts, real estate and bankruptcy. Did you know? There are LexisNexis community pages for workers' compensation law, environmental and climate change, tax law, emerging issues, and more. Did you know? Every LexisNexis community gives you the opportunity to read, listen to, and comment on a wealth of content specific to each practice area. Did you know? You can register for free and can access all of our community pages from one central location. Join the LexisNexis communities, www.lexisnexis.com slash communities. The federal judge in the Medtronic Sprint Fidelis Leeds multi-district litigation has ruled all claims in the plaintiff's master consolidated complaint are preempted by federal law. Last year, the Judicial Panel on Multidistrict Litigation transferred related cases seeking recovery because of Medtronic's recalled Sprint Fidelis defibrillator leads to the District of Minnesota. The leads were recalled in 2007 because of the potential for fracture, which can cause unnecessary shocks or failure, resulting in serious injury or death. Medtronic moved to dismiss the master complaint, arguing the plaintiff's claims were preempted under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, pursuant to the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision in Regal v. Medtronic. MDL Judge Richard Kyle said the court, quote, recognizes that at least some plaintiffs have suffered injuries from using Sprint Fidelis leads, and the court is not unsympathetic to their plight. But plaintiffs assert claims for which the court simply cannot provide a remedy. Congress has decided to limit medical device manufacturers' liability in order to spur innovation, even though individuals are sometimes injured when using medical devices. Plaintiff's remedy, therefore, lies with Congress and not with this court or any other court, end of quote. A New Jersey state court judge has affirmed a $10.5 million Accutane inflammatory bowel disease verdict. The judge denied motions for judgment notwithstanding verdict or a new trial for defendant Hoffman LaRoche. Kami Kendall took Accutane during six periods of time from 1997 to 2003. In April 1999, she was diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD. Kendall's case was tried in New Jersey's Accutane Mass Tort Case in Atlantic County Superior Court. The jury awarded $78,500 for past medical expenses and $10.5 million in unspecified compensation. Last week, Judge Carol Higby affirmed her denial of Roche's motion for dismissal based on the statute of limitations. Judge Higby also said Roach's pertinent post-trial arguments in the case were denied in another Accutane IBD case tried in the court. The judge said the factual and legal arguments of the two cases are so similar that the court incorporated the findings of fact and law from the court's memorandum of decision in the other case. In mid-November, another Atlantic County Superior Court jury awarded plaintiffs in three non-surgery IBD cases $12.8 million. No post-trial motions have been filed in that case. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Emerging Drugs and Devices Editor, Tom Moylan. 
Meanwhile, Judge Higby has ruled that whether a 2001 patient medication guide for Accutane users adequately warns of inflammatory bowel disease is a jury question. More than 80 out-of-state plaintiffs sued Hoffman-LaRoche in Atlantic County Superior Court, alleging that the acne drug caused them to develop IBD. Roche filed an omnibus motion for summary judgment, arguing that a patient medication guide adopted in January 2001 adequately warned about IBD. Judge Carol Higby agreed with the plaintiff that the language of the medication guide does not mention IBD. She found the language so general it could be found to weaken the information in the label, not strengthen it, noting there is no direct reference to IBD. The judge found other language in the medication guide that Accutane could lead to serious health problems that may not clear up is ambiguous. Noting that four juries have found that Accutane causes IBD, Judge Higby said, could lead and may not are just not direct enough to render the warning adequate as a matter of law, even if they directly discussed IBD, which they did not. Again, she said, it may be adequate, but is clearly a jury question. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Emerging Drugs and Medical Devices Editor Tom Moylan. The federal judge presiding over the Prempro multi-district litigation has agreed to certify to the Minnesota Supreme Court the question of whether out-of-state residents can use Minnesota's six-year statute of limitations to pursue claims against the makers of hormone replacement therapies. In a two-page order, U.S. Judge William Wilson of the Eastern District of Arkansas instructed counsel to meet and confer to adequately describe the issue to be presented in the question. He also asked plaintiffs' counsel to submit a short brief in response to Wyeth's opposition to some plaintiffs' request to dismiss their Arkansas lawsuits to pursue duplicate lawsuits they filed in Minnesota federal court. Over the past year, hundreds of plaintiffs who initially sued Wyeth and other makers of hormone replacement therapies in state and federal courts have filed duplicate cases in Minnesota federal courts based on the state's six-year statute of limitations. In some cases, the plaintiffs have moved to dismiss their original lawsuits and pursue their recently filed claims, and Wyeth has opposed these motions on grounds that dismissal of the original complaints would deprive the company of pursuing a statute of limitations defense. The judge overseeing New Jersey's ortho-evra mass tort proceeding has outlined the process and schedule for the selection of eight bellwether cases, with the first trial scheduled for June 15th. More from LexisNexis Mealy's Hormone Therapy Report editor, Shane Dilworth. Middlesex County Superior Court Judge Jamie Happis ordered counsel for both parties to choose eight cases and alternatively strike cases until only eight are left. The judge said the cases chosen as bellwethers should be a good mix of the types of injuries alleged, pre- and post-label change cases, and the firms representing the plaintiffs. After the eight cases are selected, the parties will have until April 7th to select the order in which they will go to trial. Meanwhile, Johnson & Johnson is reporting suits and claims involving injuries allegedly caused by the ortho birth control patch declined 66% between August and November. In its Form 10-Q report to the Securities and Exchange Commission, the manufacturer of the transdermal contraceptive said that in August there were 2,000 cases pending, and that as of November there were 1,200. Plaintiffs allege their use of the ortho patch exposed them to excessive amounts of hormones that caused them to suffer blood clots or strokes, some of which were fatal. Conversely, Johnson & Johnson said the number of claims involving the duragesic fentanyl transdermal patch increased 66% from August to November. Duragesic is made by Johnson & Johnson's Ortho McNeil Janssen Pharmaceuticals Division. Plaintiffs have alleged that the defects in the patches allowed fentanyl gel to leak out and cause overdoses. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Shane Dilworth. 
A Texas state appeals court has reversed its earlier decision that a $7.75 million Vioxx verdict was based on insufficient evidence and remanded it for further proceeding in light of alleged juror misconduct. The Fourth Court of Appeals reversal centered on specific causation, whether the surviving family proved that Vioxx and not 71-year-old Leonel Garza's several existing risk factors caused his heart attack and death in 2001. In its May 14th decision, the court had ruled that the plaintiffs had not proved. This time, the panel said it could not conclude that Dr. Americo Simeone's causation opinion premised on Garza's stable cardiac status and the rare formation of two blood clots was little more than speculation or amounted to no evidence on this issue. Therefore, the court said, after reviewing the evidence and considering the appropriate standard of review for legal sufficiency challenge, the plaintiffs carried their burden of presenting legally sufficient evidence to support a finding of specific causation. The court did, however, render a take-nothing judgment on design defect, saying the plaintiffs' arguments about a safer alternative design for Vioxx were too speculative to sustain the claim. Having reinstated the plaintiffs' other claims, however, the court had to address controversies its earlier decision avoided as extraneous, including the relationship between a juror who was a school custodian and plaintiff Felicia Garza, who taught at the same school. Garza had allegedly loaned the juror more than $12,000, but when questioned at voir dire, the court said the juror said only that he knew Garza from school and did not admit to the loans. The court said the trial judge's failure to find juror misconduct was an abuse of discretion and remanded the case for further proceeding. The Texas Supreme Court has held that the equitable, if arguably slower, remedy that the federal asbestos multi-district litigation would provide if a Maine resident refiled his Texas asbestos action in Maine does not outweigh the benefits of forum nonconvenience dismissal. Austin Richards of Maine sued a number of companies in Texas state court, alleging he developed mesothelioma in 2005 from exposure to their asbestos-containing products. Seven defendants moved for dismissal on forum nonconvenience grounds. The trial court judge noted that Richards lived, was exposed, and would probably die in Maine, but denied the motion, saying that if refiled, the case would likely end up in the, quote, black hole, end quote, of the federal asbestos MDL. However, the Texas Supreme Court said, quote, delay in disposition of a case might happen in any jurisdiction depending on docket congestion, statutes, and procedures mandating preferential setting for certain types of cases, fiscal conditions of the judiciary, and numerous other possible conditions and events, end quote. The court said such factors are unknown and necessarily speculative, and such complex matters are best avoided in forum decisions. And even if Richard's case is refiled in Maine and then transferred to the federal asbestos MDL, the court said he has not lost access to remedy for his injuries. The court explained, quote, though Richard's and others may be critical of the methods used and time taken to dispose of pretrial matters in the federal asbestos MDL scheme, the scheme is designed to resolve asbestos cases, not deprive injured parties of a remedy, end quote. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Neely's asbestos litigation editor, Brian Redding. A California federal judge has issued a stipulation that confirms a previous ruling allowing plaintiffs to pursue class action claims against a collection of manufacturers and distributors of children's toys that were found to contain lead on grounds that a voluntary product replacement program instituted by the defendants does not bar a state law refund remedy. U.S. Judge Dale Fisher of the Central District of California issued a ruling in late November in which he denied a motion to dismiss filed by defendants Mattel, Walmart, Fisher Price, KB Toys, Kmart, Toys R Us, and Target. 
Close to 20 plaintiffs have sued those companies, alleging injury and negligence for making and selling children's toys that contained lead. Judge Fisher found the plaintiffs properly alleged injury and said that, contrary to the defendant's argument, recovery for future medical monitoring is allowed under California law. Furthermore, the judge said the defendant's position that the plaintiffs have not alleged that any children actually ingested lead begs the question. The main point of the medical monitoring claim, he said, is that no one knows whether the children in question actually ingested the lead, which is the reason for monitoring in the first place. Judge Fisher said the argument that some plaintiffs have not been injured because they received replacement toys as part of voluntary recalls was unpersuasive. He ruled that while the replacement program is relevant to a discussion on the issue of preemption, unilateral offering of a remedy by a defendant does not change the fact that a plaintiff has been injured. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Mealy's Lead Litigation Publication Editor, James Cordray. Florida Attorney General Bill McCollum has announced a $12 million multi-state settlement with Toymaker Mattel and subsidiary Fisher-Price. The settlement resolves a 16-month investigation into the events surrounding a recall of the company's products for excessive levels of lead paint. The 39 states were led by an executive committee consisting of assistant attorneys general in Florida, Arizona, Kentucky, Massachusetts, Missouri, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Vermont. The action was filed in the Broward County, Florida Circuit Court. In 2007, the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission recalled close to 2 million Mattel and Fisher-Price toys made in China, alleging the toys contained excessive levels of lead. The agreement requires tougher standards for toys manufactured after November 30th. Mattel will immediately drop the acceptable lead levels and surface coatings from 600 to 90 parts per million. The Washington Supreme Court has held that neither negligence nor strict liability theories require the maker of an evaporator later filled with third-party asbestos-containing insulation to warn users that the product might contain asbestos. Joseph and Janet Simonetta sued a number of companies in King County Superior Court, alleging his lung cancer was the result of asbestos exposure while in the U.S. Navy. Among the claims were those against Viad Corporation, alleging that to operate properly its evaporators needed insulation Viad knew would contain asbestos, and that it had a duty to warn about its possible presence. A trial judge dismissed the claims, but the Washington Court of Appeals reversed. But on appeal, Washington's High Court noted that under negligence laws, quote, component sellers are not generally liable when the component itself is not defective, end of quote. Washington case law analyzing the second restatement of torts, section 288, generally limits the analysis of the duty to warn of the hazards of a product to those in the chain of the distribution of the product, such as manufacturers, suppliers, or sellers. Therefore, the court found little or no support under case law for extending the duty to warn to another manufacturer's product. Nor, the court said, can Viad be held liable for strict liability failure to warn. The court noted that Viad had no control over the manufacture or marketing of the asbestos insulation later added to its product, and that the U.S. Navy, not Viad, selected the type of insulation used. A Colorado woman this month filed a class action lawsuit accusing a leading video game manufacturer of producing a faulty gaming controller. Molly Elvig sued Nintendo of America in the District of Colorado, asserting violation of the Colorado Consumer Protection Act and breach of warranty through its sales, marketing, design, and distribution of its Nintendo Wii video gaming system. 
Elvig claims the wrist strap on the Wii's remote gaming controllers routinely break during normal game use. She said that when the strap breaks, the controller can fly out of the user's hand, causing personal injury or damage to personal property. Elvig cited numerous reports where the strap has broken, causing the controller to fly into television screens and injuring users or observers, and claims her 11-year-old was using the game when the wrist strap broke, causing the controller to fly into and shatter Elvig's 52-inch flat-screen Samsung television. The plaintiff claims that despite its knowledge of hundreds of incidents where the controller strap has broken, Nintendo has failed to report the existence of a single incident to the Consumer Product Safety Commission. You're listening to the LexisNexis Product Liability and Toxic Torts Practice Center podcast. If you'd like more details on these and other stories, visit www.lexisnexis.com slash or go to the LexisNexis community page at www.lexisnexis.com communities and click on the Torts Law link. The LexisNexis Product Liability and Toxic Torts Practice Center podcast was written by the editors of Mealy Publications, current and targeted legal news and litigation reports. Copyright 2008 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexis, Total Practice Solutions. I'm Michael Lefkowitz. Thanks for listening.